So, here we are. Let's pray. And when the preacher says, let's pray, you want to pray because, you know, he's got the microphone for the next good while. Lord God, uh, I ask that you would help me to illuminate the truths that you have placed in your word. I ask that they would go deep into our hearts and those truths would cause us not just to, to be different, but to do differently. Um, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. Thank you for amazing ability to gather together and to worship you in song. Be with us, not just now, during the sermon, during the worship, but afterwards during the potluck, Lord. Uh, bind us together with uh, lovely cords that cannot be broken. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. So, as uh, many of you know, I am of Greek descent, and what you don't know, probably, is that uh, my grandparents come from two different portions of Greece. Uh, two of my grandparents come from the island of Crete, which is south of the mainland, and then two of them come from what the Greeks call the Peloponnesos, uh, in an area uh, that's known as uh, Sparta. So if you've read the graphic novels, or if you've seen the movie, The 300, or if you've read any kind of history, you know the Spartans are fairly famous for being a very warlike civilization. And uh, their fame was such there were no occupations for a Spartan citizen, a young man, other than warrior. All the farming, all the trades were done by slaves that they had conquered in battle. And they were known for very austere and rigorous training. One of the stories goes that... Uh, they had a contest to see who could take torture the longest. And so the young men would line up to be, to be beaten or whipped, and the one who lasted the longest without losing consciousness won and received the reward. Others would die during that process. And it was actually an honor to die during that ordeal. The... Roman historian Plutarch wrote a lot about the Spartans. And he told the story about how an ambassador from another part of Greece came to see the fabled city and to meet its rulers and its people. Knowing that the Spartan strength was acclaimed throughout Greece, he'd expected to see a massive fortress with high walls, but he found nothing of the kind. He found fields and then a city. So he exclaimed to the Spartan ruler, King Agasilaos, Sir, you have no fortifications for defense. I see no city walls. Why is this? Ah, 
the king replied. But we are extremely well protected. Come with me tomorrow. I will show you the walls of Sparta. The next day he led his guest to a plain where the army was arrayed in full battle gear, pointing proudly to his soldiers who stood there fearlessly in place. The king said, Behold, the walls of Sparta, 10,000 young men and every man a brick. The Spartan house was a house of war, trained by severity, trained by great pain, which then subjugated its enemies into slavery and maintained its power in pride. The walls of Sparta were its young men, and they said that its borders were the tips of their spears. God's house is also said to be made up of living stones. But it looks very, very different than the Spartan house. We are to be built with humility instead of pride. Weakness instead of power. Surrender to God instead of subjugation and overpowering of others. We trade Success for faithfulness. We trade mere entertainment for worship. We trade immorality for holiness. We trade self-indulgence for good deeds to others. To put it bluntly, even though I'm of Spartan heritage, I've been called to a higher order and to a higher method. I have been called, and you have been called, to build God's house in God's way. Let's look at our own church building here for a minute. This part over here is about 130 years old. 1881, actually, is what the cornerstone says. The church was just... This section here going north to south. About 20, 30 years later, this section was built. Underneath this floor, which is flat, there's actually a sloping floor that goes up at a five-degree angle. And then that section over there was built later. In 1990s, an artist bought this building and did a massive renovation, put in that bathroom over there and the amazing foyer over here and did some incredible painting, things like that on the walls, brought in bits and pieces from the old Empire Bank building in downtown Denver, which was torn down 20 years before that. And then just a few years ago, we did a massive reconstruction because we had to or get kicked out. 
And so, yeah, we put in this art gallery foyer up here, and we made the stage bigger, and we got hand railings, and we got new HVAC and new plumbing, and we got bathrooms, we got the basement redone, and we got steel girders put in a couple different places. A new porch out front, new landings all the way around, new doors. This house has been built over a span of time with materials from all over the place. And it's so with God's house. It spans the centuries. It spans ethnicities. It brings people together from all walks of life, men, women, children, old people, Slave, free, married, single, rich, poor. With all sorts of different gifts and talents. And God is building us into a house that proclaims His glory. It's interesting, as I was doing research for this, I recalled something I had read a long time ago when I was in seminary, which is that when Solomon was building the temple in the Old Testament that had been blueprinted by his father David, that there was not to be the sound of any tool on the site of the holy mountain where the temple was being built. All the chiseling, all the sawing, all the nailing, everything had to be done off-site and then brought together on the holy hill and fitted in place in relative silence. Everything had to be perfectly aligned, perfectly sized before it came to be part of the final temple on the mount in Jerusalem. And I thought, wait a minute. That's what God's doing with us. All the chiseling, all the sawing, all the difficult things that we go through in this life that form us into the image of Jesus is being done here in this life, in this place, so that in the new heavens and the new earth, we are perfected saints being fit together with no error. Isn't that amazing? So, let's go to the Scripture and see what it has to say about God's true building, His church. First Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, 
But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now we're going to go through this again. I'm going to start back in verse 2 and just briefly go over the things that I think may be questions percolating in your brain. Now, the living stone at the very, very beginning in verse 4 is Christ, obviously. As you come to him, the living stone. Now, Jesus called himself by a lot of different inanimate objects. He's the living water, for example, right? He is the living bread, he says other places. And so he's taking an inanimate object, a stone, and saying that he is the living stone. Now, you can't have a relationship with a stone or a cornerstone. You can see it there. You can have a date on it. Big deal. But this house is being built and oriented. The whole building that Jesus is trying to build on this earth is oriented by him. And we can have a relationship with him. in a lot of ways deeper than this building had a relationship with its cornerstone. You can talk to him. You can listen to what he has to say. The main thing in church is to keep the main thing the main thing. All right? And the main thing is Jesus Christ. If we ever get to be a church, is to not put the relationship with Jesus Christ is the primary reason that we are in existence. We have begun not to be part of the building that he's building. All right? So let's make sure that a relationship with Jesus Christ is what we point each other toward every single day. The fact that it was rejected by men and chosen by God should be a warning to us. If they rejected the one upon whom the whole building is founded, they may reject the rest of us bricks as well. We may become a stumbling block to people even though we don't want to be. Jesus likes to use this stone and rock metaphor quite a bit. In the Gospels, he's talking to the Apostle Peter, and he says, 
Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Now, Peter had just got done declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. And so, very many people will say that what Jesus is declaring, that I'm going to build the church upon that proclamation of faith that I am the Messiah. And I believe that. That is a Protestant view of that verse. The Catholic view of the verse would be that Jesus is going to build his church upon Peter, the rock. That he's going to be the leader of the church as it is birthed. And I believe that too. I have no problem with Peter being the rock upon which he builds his church. Obviously, Peter's rock is Jesus. There is a priesthood of all believers. I think in that way we're all part of the building, right? Talks about us being a royal priesthood. There's one of the great things about the Reformation, if you know history at all, is that it brought to everybody in the congregation the idea that you too are priests of God. You don't need someone to mediate for you. You've got direct access. You've got communication with a foundation stone. You've got a personal relationship with the living stone. You can be a royal priesthood. It's kind of great. That means that me, it means that the pastor is no more important than anybody else in the pews. I can't stress this enough. I'm fulfilling my role in the building. But I'm no good without you if you don't fulfill your role in the building. My role is not holier than your role. I remember trying to be a salesman and watching guys. I mean, these guys could work three days a week and make, you know, six figures easily. How? They had the gift of selling. And it was their excitement, their abilities as a salesperson that brought the money in that helped support the admission agencies that they would give to or the churches that they would give to. I couldn't do that as well. I never made six figures as a salesman, ever. Or when I was in the steel mill. And I realized there were guys who understood how to work in a factory environment without getting themselves killed. That is a gift, my friend. And, you know, the world needs steel. You put me in charge of things and stuff goes wrong. Like one time, I absolutely, totally blew my job and I ruined an entire heat of steel. We're talking end-use millions of dollars. I personally got it all thrown out. Because my gift wasn't in that area. So... All of us, a priesthood of believers, every job is holy unto the Lord. I'm going to go to verse 8, because that's a difficult verse. A stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Doesn't Jesus cause people to stumble? You know, people say that they like Jesus, but not the church. 
They don't know Jesus very well. They don't. I mean, as a scum of the earth church pastor, I'm telling you, I know tons of people who love this community. They love Christians. You guys are nice people. You're honest. You're fair. You help out when there's a need. You know how to have a good time without getting blitzed out of your mind. Seriously, you're a great group of folks. Jesus is the one, though, that they don't like. Because he requires things of people. And then the next verse, which... No, no, go back, I'm sorry. The second half of eight. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Anybody else troubled about that when they read it the first time? (laughs) Yeah, me, right? What are you saying, Peter? Are you saying that some people are destined to disobey the gospel? Well, there are some who would interpret it that way, I've got to admit. Not the way that I interpret it. And I'm not alone. They are destined to stumble because they disobey. They're destined to stumble because they disobey the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, what do you expect if you ignore God's instructions? What do you expect if Jesus is trying to teach you how to walk and you refuse to listen to his instructions? You're going to stumble. People who ignore Jesus are going to stumble through this life trying to find happiness, trying to find fulfillment, trying to find a purpose, trying to find love, and they're going to have a hard time finding it because they're disobeying the message. As a result, their lives are going to be worse than they would be if they would follow Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. Following Jesus does not make your life roses and unicorns and rainbows. It's very, very difficult. But it's a whole lot better than it would be if you didn't follow Jesus. Jesus said that uh, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. But it's still a yoke and it's still a burden. Okay? Let's skip down to verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. This is not just like a snap judgment on the pagans' part or on the world's part. The Greek word here is one of careful watching. It's of uh, seeing over a long period of time. We have lives 
that speak of the glories of God. I mean, seriously, you take a look at your life from when, uh, before you were a Christian, perhaps, and then later on after you've been a Christian for 30 years, there should be a marked difference in the way you live your life. And people who watch your life will probably stand back in amazement and go, I never thought he would do that. I never thought she would do that. He hates being dirty. He's always using that Purell hand sanitizer stuff, and he's down every week at the soup kitchen helping to feed the homeless and holding their hands and praying with them. You see the kind of life changes somebody and I have? It's dramatic. Or, you know, their marriage was terrible. They were sleeping with other people. They were drunk all the time and fighting with each other. There's holes in the walls and then the doors at their house. And here they are, loving each other, walking hand in hand, after 35 years of marriage, more in love than they ever were before. I've seen that so many times. It's a testimony to the glory of God and what He's done in somebody's life. I've seen it right here at Scum. I've seen transformation like that. It's amazing. What do they tell you when you go to premarital counseling? Don't they usually say something like, don't expect to change your spouse? You can't change your husband. You can't change your wife. If you go into this relationship thinking you're going to change them, this marriage is in big trouble. And that's good counseling. Because you don't have that kind of power. But God does, and He intends to change us. So, the question I have, really, is why has God made us into a house for himself. Why? Well, the answer is fairly clear. is to make a name. To extend his reputation. To proclaim his excellencies, his wonders, his saving work in bringing us from darkness to light. That is why he's building this thing. And why he chooses me or he chooses you to do this thing is beyond my ability to understand. Because to me, that's like a huge risk. That God would use me and use you to extend his reputation on the earth. That's crazy. Right? Because most Christians, you know, they're not perfect. As I said before, if you're looking for the perfect church, don't join it because you'll wreck it. I mean, we are all works in progress. And the fact that God trusts us with His reputation, His glory, that's amazing. How are we to make a name for God? I think there's really two ways this passage calls us to make a name for God and to spread His glory on the earth. 
One would be the internal way, and the other would be the external way. There's an internal battle that goes on. There's an external battle that goes on. You guys ever disgusted with American culture like I am? I mean, seriously, do you ever turn on the television and just get kind of sick to your stomach with what's on and the things people are doing? The reality shows. Jersey Shore, you know, the wives of Beverly Hills. I'm going like, seriously? Do I need to know what the Kardashians are doing? I mean, this is embarrassing to be part of the culture. Now, when Callum Mail, our, our British guest, comes, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that this is the state of our television. I mean, I'd rather watch the BBC. <laughs> you can watch CNN. Yeah, reporting on all the dumb things that we do and say. But, uh, yeah. You can watch news programs. So, I would say that, that as I look at the shallowness of our culture, that what is needed is a change inside of here for American Christians, or at least for America, period. That we need to cultivate the inner life. And I, I think that, that the Apostle Peter is saying we need to cultivate the inner life with Christ because that's the motor that drives everything else. I mean, you and I, we're all kind of sick of, of Christians who have everything going on the outside and there's no real inner life on the inside. You know, they're all talk, they're all Bible, they're all... Uh, jargon, and yet uh, there's something that's missing on the inside. The relationship with Jesus is a very, very fundamental and elementary one. One of the things we've tried to do at Scum of the Earth in the last year is to bring a deep understanding of the Lord individually to people here. That's why we started the prayer and worship ministry. We've been doing this every month for a year. We've been gathering together to pray. I mean, who does that anymore? I think we might have one of the few prayer meetings, regular prayer meetings around the city, it seems. But the attempt is to develop the inner life. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Peter's agenda here is one of inside transformation and then evangelistic outreach outside after that. As Richard Foster has said, a writer about spiritual disciplines, he said this, and I think this is just killer, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant gratification is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. If we're too busy to pray, we're just too busy. I would say we're too busy not to pray, not to worship. The relationship with Christ is primary. It's fundamental. It's what makes everything else make sense. 
Why would you go to church? Why would you do any kind of service projects? Why would you sing praise songs if there wasn't something going on inside of here on a regular daily basis? Our hope is is that it's not just about the once-a-month prayer gatherings, but that that would spill over into your lives. Every day you would have a worship time with Jesus. I remember when a seminary student was interviewing Deva, our worship leader, for a paper that he was writing, and he asked her, well, how do you prepare for worship? And Deva was a bit taken aback by the question. She said, well, by worshiping, of course. I mean, seriously, Deva would not need you all here or me here to worship. She would just come with her guitar, and she would sing praise songs to Jesus all by herself. There's a deep inner life that's going on. And it's not just for her, it's for every one of us. And the second thing is the external battle. If the reputation of God is going to spread, if people are going to look at this house that God is building and just be in awe of it, it can't be just about our inner lives. It's got to be about something that they can see externally. We'll have to get beyond our desires to deeds that people can see and people can hear. Peter's clearest statement about this is a paraphrase of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. And here is the point I'm trying to make. Doing good deeds before an onlooking world is a necessary part of making God's marvelous wonderful reputation known throughout the earth. We have to be about good deeds. Your generation actually knows this better than my generation. My generation is all about evangelism and the tracks and singing the worship songs and, you know, talking about Jesus. Your generation, honestly, is better at social justice, at mission, at doing things in Jesus' name. For people. Whether it's kids who are involved in sex trafficking, or whether it's drilling fresh water wells in South America, or whether it's uh, just building a house with habitat for humanity, or working at the Glasgow Inner City Mission, I really respect that about the younger generation. You get it. The Apostle Paul made the same point in Titus chapter 3. He said that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify him for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. In Galatians chapter 6, he said, As we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of faith. You guys have been marvelous when it comes to taking care of Kathy and Aaron Pence and Amy Leon and other people like that who have gone through hospital stays recently, bringing meals, going to visit, helping do their chores. 
uh, around here uh, because they can't work. I mean, my hat is off to you guys. Thank you for being the kind of people that Peter is talking about here. It's going to get out. Amy Leon's friends were amazed at how many people from the church would come by and actually see her in the hospital and help her out. The fact that they've been living at the Blombergs for the past three or four days, at the scum mash unit. I mean, who does that? Christians do that. People who are following Jesus do that. Folks who are being built into a house that is so glorious in God's name that they sit back in awestruck wonder and go, wow, there's really something about you guys. Behold, how they love one another. Maybe there's something to this Christian thing. Because I see you guys. You're putting on an open house trick-or-treat thing for the neighborhood kids. Do you expect them to come to your church? No. You expect their parents to donate to your ministries? No. Why are you doing it? Because it's a good thing to do. At least when they come here, they're not going to get razor blades in their candy. They're not going to get molested. They're not going to get scared out of their wits. They're going to be loved on. They're going to know this is a safe place. It was great. We were having a seminar this weekend. Had about seven middle school guys come up during the seminar, and they're all talking real loud like middle school guys. Go, hey, man, can we use your bathroom? Man, we need to use your bathroom. Like, man, you need water. You can water. I start drinking fountain. I go, listen, what? Just wait. Tell you what, you guys be really quiet right here. Tell you what, I'll get you some bottled water, and if you're quiet, you can walk back down here and go to the restroom. Okay. They walk out. And then some of their friends come, Hey, can we have some water too? I go, Shh, yeah, no problem. <laughs> All right. Do me a favor. When you walk around the neighborhood and you see anybody wanting to do something bad to this building, tell them it's not cool. Okay, no problem. Be a people who are zealous for good deeds. People who are not enslaved to worldly comforts. Be people who consider it more blessed to give than to receive. Be people who dream not about the comforts of bigger salaries or days of vacation or retirement packages, but who dream about how many different and creative ways we can make a name for the glory of the grace of God in this city and around the world, said John Piper, and I agree. Religion is not to be a prop for your political agenda. It is not meant to sanctify your governmental program. Instead, the Christian message is a separate voice. It's a voice in the wilderness. It's a 
clarion call to come and join in an alternative society that is there for the glory of God. It puts the prevailing culture and the status quo on notice that your system is destined for destruction and faulty in its foundations and will come tumbling down. But the house of God will stand forever. I'm thinking if we have any committees at SCUM, which we don't, we should have a committee that addresses how to live a holy inner life and a committee that addresses how to do good deeds in the face of an unbelieving world that leads them to glorify God. Let me stress this, and this is important for scum. Countercultural living is not the goal, though. All right? Countercultural living is a result of following Jesus Christ. We've been doing uh, stories here attached to sermons. I've asked uh, my young guest, Callum Mayo, to come and to talk to you about his journey with Jesus. Callum, come on up, buddy. Hello, hello, hello. I'm sorry, my colonial cousins, but that is not how we all talk. Um, let, me, let me give you a little bit of an introduction about who I am. Um, my name is Callum Mel, that is C-A-L-L-U-M, not Colin, not Calum, not Calun, it's Callum. Um, I come from Cambridge, England, um, I'm 19 years old and I'm currently staying at the Sayers household um, and I'm interning here, I've got two weeks left and then I'm, I'm back to England. So, um, so I feel that my, the story of my testimony is really only just beginning but um, I'm happy to give you the first few chapters of that. Um, so, so my father is a vicar or a pastor, and um, so I grew up in a church environment. I've known who God is and who Jesus is my entire life, so I've been very fortunate in that. And um, so, yeah, so I was always in that environment. I always um, got to a church service an hour before it started and left an hour after it's left. So, so as a young kid, I thought, well. Well, I must be a Christian. I know who God is. I read my Bible sometimes. I'm at church every week. My dad's a vicar. I must be in. That must, I'm sorted. So that was how I kind of was living my life. And then at about the age of 13 to 15, um, suddenly at school, being, Christ, being a Christian was not cool anymore. Um, that kind of came as a shock to me as a young kid having a dad who was a vicar. That's pretty cool. Um, that's a bit different. People were like that. Once I got to 13, 15, suddenly that's not cool anymore. Um, so that was a bit of a shock. And then I'm the youngest of three children. I have two older sisters. And uh, around this time, both of those sisters fell away from Christ. Totally, completely. Want nothing to do with it. Uh, as the youngest, that, that holds a big sway over me. And um, so I started to evaluate my own faith and start to think, well... 
well, if it's not cool at school and my sisters don't believe it, well, how much do I want to be a part of this? At the same time, every year I was going to a Christian camp um, for a week every summer, and they had guest speakers every time. And this one year, around the same time this was happening, this lady from South Africa was speaking, and um, she'd been brought up in a, a Muslim family, traditional Muslim family in South Africa. And one night, Jesus came to her in a dream, and he said, I want you to follow me. And she woke up, and she said, yes. She said, yes, I want to follow this, this man. She told her family they shunned her. They said she had, to, she had to come to England to escape them because they wanted to punish her, and she hasn't spoken to them since. While she was talking, I kind of felt God say to me, this is faith. This is faith. This is what I want from my children. This unbelievable faith that whatever I say, get up, do it. And at 15 years old, I kind of thought, nah, I don't want any of that. That is way too much for me. Forget that. I'm done with this. Wash my hands of it. Religion, I'm done with it. So for the next couple of years, I lived my life exactly how I wanted to. I did what I want, and I, I did whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. I was the driver of my own life, and I thought everything was awesome. Thought everything was perfect. Um, was still kind of, obviously with a vicar father, still had that environment around me, but I thought I was doing fine. And then um, gradually I started to get worn down by all this sin. My life started, things started happening that I just, just it wasn't what I wanted. It, I knew I wasn't happy with how it was going. And that is when I started to hear about grace and the idea that, my whole life in that church environment, I'd heard about Jesus on the cross, died for the world's sin. Boom, got it, know it. But the idea of grace that, he, yeah, he died for the world's sin, but he died for Callum Mayo's sin. He died for my personal sin, my sin that's chaining me down, that's making me feel so low. The saviour of the universe, the king of everything, the creator of every single thing, is stood next to me and is taking my chains. I can think of all the sins that I've committed. I can think of them in my head. And he's saying, I want all of them and I want them to put on me. And it's like, but, but you're the perfect God. How can you take my sin away from me? He says, son, I want to take your sin. You're free. Go and live an amazing life. Go and do it. But, but God, I'm gonna, I know I'm going to sin again. I love you. I don't want to hurt you anymore. When you sin again, I'll be here again. And that, when I heard that idea of grace, it was like, that was something amazing. I'd never heard it like that. The idea that this change that had been making me feel so bad, he wanted to take them away from me. It wasn't just that I got to give them to him, but he wanted them. And he wanted me to go live a happy, free, amazing life in his name. So I thought that was pretty amazing. And um, so after that, I kind, you kind of get to the second step. Okay, I've accepted God's message. I want to live for God. Now what? What do I do now? And um, my father likes to tell a story that, that has stuck with me and that I like to think about in that situation where... So when he was in a curacy in Leicestershire, that's Leicestershire, America, not Leicestershire, he, it was the church, not dissimilar to here, was in a, a, a poor, poverty-stricken, not very good neighborhood. A lot of crime. And the, and the Christians there would come to him and they would say... When, when are all the Christians going to come in and, and make this neighborhood really good? When is the Christian A-team going to ride in and just rid this neighborhood of all the sin and everything? 
And my dad said that 99% of his job there was to say, it's you. You're the Christian A-team that God has sent here. You're his workers that he's put here for a reason to go and do his job. And that's what I think was my next step was to realize my, my individual role. Whatever, and it wasn't, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. It was whatever God says, that's what I want to do. I want to do whatever it is that it's going to take. And there's still stuff and sin that I struggle with. And the very idea that I'm forgiven all the time, no matter how many more times I sin, is still something I struggle with. But one thing that I like to think about and one thing that I want to leave you with is the idea that I truly believe that if I have just one grain of love for God in me, if I have one grain of hope in the work that he's doing in me, and one grain of thanks for the eternal life that I will inherit, then I am 100% saved. And that is a wonderful thing. So thank you very much. Have a good night.